0: Jesus, our Messiah, was born a Jew. His friends and followers were Jews. Why does that matter? Well, anyone who holds the Scriptures to be the Word of God will want a better understanding of the people he chose, the apple of his eye. Coming up, we'll explore Jewish culture and customs and how they reveal the person and work of Messiah Jesus. Welcome to The Land and the Book. Our host is the one and only Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert and author, and I'm John Geiger. Hey, Charlie, remember last week how we announced our Kickstart contest giveaway? I do, John. Well, we had the four commentaries we were going to give away. All kinds of people wrote in. We drew a name, and that name is Carolyn Kimball, who listens to us on Moody Radio Chicago. Nice to have somebody from our hometown area. She writes, I have faithfully listened to the land and the book for more than a decade, I'm glued to the latest news about Israel, about the countries surrounding them, about their technological and medical acumen, and also their leaders. I watch all the news to see where things may be going for our spiritual future, but in addition, your devotions are very stirring, relevant, and prayerful. This program means so much to me. I've never been to Israel, but your teaching makes me feel that I'm that country's neighbor. So thank you for your ministry. That's a neat letter, Charlie. That really is, John. And I'm sure we got a lot of great ones.
1: It's just a shame that we uh, couldn't give away more prizes to all of them.
0: Yeah, I feel exactly that way. And we wanted to say thank you to everybody who entered our contest. If you didn't win, well, maybe next time. And there will be a next time. Well, how do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it is sometimes challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with someone from a Jewish background. You ever wondered maybe how the uh, quote unquote professionals do it? And to answer that question, our
1: friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. This will serve a dual purpose of equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supplying you with tracks you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life and Messiah's prayer is that each of these tracks will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. To receive this helpful assortment of tracks, All you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio
0: button for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. All right, let's uh, steer our focus toward current events from the Middle East. Political upheaval in Israel over proposed judicial reform continues to impact the country. It's all over the media here. How serious is the division within Israel, and is there any room for compromise? This is a serious political chasm, with some even suggesting the possibility
1: of open warfare between the opposing groups. The mayor of Tel Aviv added fuel to the fire when he announced, quote, democracy can only be restored via bloodshed. Now, decisions and statements are being made on all sides that are just adding to the anger. Israel's high court agreed to hear a petition to declare Prime Minister Netanyahu unfit for office. Wow. His crime? presiding over a government seeking to limit the power of the judiciary. Coalition leaders said that's the equivalent of the judiciary launching a military coup to overthrow a legitimately elected government and shows why a judicial overhaul is necessary. Now President Herzog delivered an impassioned and heartfelt speech Sunday night calling for compromise in light of potential societal collapse and he implored Israelis on all sides to refrain from violence. He admitted there are issues with the judiciary that need to be addressed, and he presented a five-point plan that could serve as a basis for discussion and, hopefully, compromise. Now, some members of Prime Minister Netanyahu's party signaled a willingness to at least discuss compromise based on the proposals. And the president held separate meetings this week with the chairman of the committee pushing the legislation and with opposition leaders. But there are still strident voices on both sides rejecting any possible compromise. You know, in Israel's politically charged atmosphere, no one wants to appear weak. Uh, what's really needed, though, is continued closed door meetings with the heads of all major parties, along with those in the current coalition responsible for drafting legislation for judicial reform. The goal needs to be to draft a compromise that could be presented to the entire Knesset for a vote. Now, I'm not sure if that'll happen, John, but hopefully uh, this week, this weekend, and the following week, these leaders will recognize the need for compromise
0: to avoid out-and-out civil war. Palestinian Authority President Abbas has announced that he'll push for full UN membership for a state of Palestine. What impact will this have on the Palestinian Authority and on Israel? Yeah,
1: Abbas made this announcement at the most recent Arab League summit, and the Palestinians currently are non-member observers. That's the status that they have at the UN. He said he's going to push to have the UN reaffirm its commitment to a two-state solution and to condemn what he calls Israel's unilateral measures like settlement construction. He also claimed it's a religious duty to support Palestinians' rights for Jerusalem. And he condemned the 1917 Balfour Declaration that granted Israel a homeland, stating it was really aimed at getting rid of the Jews in Europe, while at the same time claiming that it established Israel as an outpost to guard the interests of the colonial powers. Now, Abbas's actions seem self-contradictory. He called for a two state solution while rejecting the Balfour Declaration, on which the two state solution was originally based. Mm-hmm. And he condemned Israel's unilateral actions in the West Bank while announcing his own unilateral actions. Now, Abbas apparently feels his recent victories in the UN increase his chances of pushing forward his agenda. But he's also on thin ice politically at home. He's 87 years old with several ongoing health problems. And his popularity, along with those of the Palestinian Authority, are at an all-time low. He's not allowed an apparent successor to emerge in the Palestinian Authority. He's even hollowed out government institutions to remove potential rivals. His sudden death could cause the Palestinian Authority to collapse as rival groups fight to gain control. And with the recent increase in violence, Israel might be forced to step in to keep the situation from spiraling out of control. Hmm. Uh, Abbas is gambling that he can remain alive and in control long enough to get the UN to push Israel into a corner and force it to agree to his demands. Uh, I'm not sure that's a wise move or a wise course of action
0: on his part. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. It's current events for segment one. As Iran celebrated the 44th anniversary of its Islamic Revolution, it remains a country in turmoil. Have the leaders successfully put down the latest threat to their control? And will their alliances with Russia and China protect them against an Israeli attack on their nuclear facilities?
1: Well, rallies were held throughout Iran to celebrate this anniversary. Uh, the government was clearly trying to present itself as being in control, moving forward, and supported by the vast majority of the Iranian people. Iranian President Raisi claimed the protests have been defeated. However, online hackers briefly interrupted the state's TV coverage with a logo of the anti-Iranian group called Justice for All Hmm. and a voice shouting, Death to the Islamic Republic. Hmm. Now, protests in the country are still ongoing, but the leadership apparently feels they've weathered the initial threat and are now just dealing with it in more of an annoyance or a distraction. Iran's greater concern is the state of the economy and the threat of a combined Israeli-U.S. attack against their nuclear facilities. Uh, Recent U.S.-Israeli maneuvers were designed to send a message to Iran, and apparently Iran got that message. Uh, That's why they're now trying to bolster both their economy and their defenses by looking toward Russia and China. Iranian officials visited Russia to select a site for a drone-building factory that could produce 6,000 UAVs. The two countries also linked up their banking systems to boost their cooperation in the face of Western sanctions. Iran is Russia's top military backer, and in return, they're receiving other Russian military hardware that they hope will help prevent an Israeli-U.S. attack. Iran has also approached China regarding the co-production of drones there that China could use to attack Taiwan. In exchange, Iran would receive Chinese technology. The bottom line is that these three countries are trying to form a deadly alliance, and to do so, especially to stop this
0: threatened U.S. Israeli attack against Iranian nuclear facilities. Sounds tense. Researchers scrutinizing tree ring samples from central Turkey believe they've discovered the cause for the collapse of the Hittite Empire. What exactly did they find?
1: Yeah, by way of background, the Hittites were a major empire in what's today central Turkey. Uh, They were on par with Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon but around 1200 BC, their capital was abandoned and their empire vanished. Uh, These researchers examined tree ring samples and looked at patterns of tree ring growth along with changes in the ratio of carbon 12 to carbon 13 recorded in the rings. Uh, They discovered that the region suffered a dramatic continuous period of severe drought around 1198 to 1196 BC. Three years of drought and the subsequent crop failures that accompanied it, rendered the area uninhabitable, forcing the people to move away to avoid starvation. This coincides with a period of societal collapse that seemed to envelop the whole region from Egypt to Mycenae in Greece to Cyprus to Syria. It also coincides with the arrival of the Philistines in large numbers in Israel. The question not answered in the article is what caused that sudden and dramatic change in climate. Some believe the climate change was caused by a massive volcanic eruption elsewhere in the world, For whatever reason, the abandonment of the Hittite Empire coincides with the collapse of these other empires in the larger region and the subsequent migration of these large groups of people.
0: And that's a look at current events here on The Land in the Book. Coming up, exploring Jewish culture and customs. You know, our Messiah Jesus was born a Jew. His friends and followers are Jews. And that matters to us as we study his word. That's a great conversation. Then later on, Charlie returns with a fresh set of Bible questions. He's got a devotional for us and a whole lot more on today's edition of The Land and the Book. What makes Jewish culture so meaningful for believers, whether Jewish or not? The truth is most people miss the brilliant tapestry of culture that is the Jewish heritage. But a deeply meaningful world lies at the intersection of Jewish experience and expression. What do you say we explore that world next? From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book, and I'm John Geiger. Hey, before we go any further, let me invite you to get creative with me in thinking through ideas that will help us connect with our Jewish friends. Can you talk to your Jewish friends about heaven and hell? Is that an appropriate conversation? Let's ask Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel. What
2: do you think, Greg? Absolutely. There's a lot of different ways that you can talk to them about heaven and hell. Uh, there's one quotation in Daniel 12, but at the time your people, everyone whose name is found in the book of life, will be delivered. That sounds like the book of heaven and hell. Orthodox Jewish people believe in the scriptures, so if you share with them, they will definitely deal with the claims that you said. Conservative people are basically just whether they're a good person or not, they'll go to heaven or hell and reform people believe that their memories are lived on through their children. So I really hope that reformed Jews have lots of children, otherwise, they have no memory, so they're not offended if I talk about heaven and hell, but
0: I'll probably get more than one opinion.
2: Yes, it's always good to ask them about eternal life, and you get to know uh, where they're at, whether they actually believe that this is a place, whether they believe uh, good works will get them there. Um, sometimes reform, Jewish people believe that in a technological perfection of science and technology, that we're going to have a perfect world. Well, to that I say, look at my iPhone. This is not improving my life. (laughs) That's Greg
0: Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel here on The Land and the Book. I want you to meet Steve Herzig. He's director of North American Ministries for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry He's a conference speaker, Bible teacher, and contributing editor with Israel My Glory magazine. Nice to finally connect here on The Land and the Book, Steve.
3: Hey, it's great to be with you, John. I'm excited about this. You know, I lived in Chicago for a number of years, and this is the first time that I'm on the other end of Moody, because I always used to tune in in Chicago. Now I'm on.
2: This is
0: great. It's going to be greater yet when we hear your story. And let's start with your testimony Raised in a kosher Jewish home, you went off to college where you met, of all things, a born-again Christian. Describe that relationship.
3: John, that's absolutely true. I was 18 years old. I never heard the gospel. I thought that, you know, you were Christian, whether you were Mormon, Baptist, Jehovah's Witness. It didn't matter to me. I just lumped everybody together. But this person came up to me and said, uh, hey, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? I said, no, I'm Jewish. And he said, oh, you're going to hell. And so I said, what? (laughs) Well, Well, not a great greeting and certainly not a great way to hear the gospel for the first time. But I'll tell you, making a long story short, we ultimately became very good friends after I set a few ground rules for him not (laughs) to talk that way to me. And over the next few years, I was able to watch his life. I never came to Christ during my time in college, but I'll always remember the testimony that he had. A great guy. Uh, very passionate about what he believed, I would say needed a little help as as far as sharing (laughs) Christ with Jewish people, but he loved people. His life was markedly different, and I never forgot that. Hmm. But ultimately, I went on a vacation to California to visit my sister, and it was there that I was introduced to the gospel through a Bible that we both received, my sister and I, from our Orthodox synagogue, a white Old Testament, no New Testament, that quite frankly, I didn't read until my sister challenged me in, of all chapters, and John, you're probably familiar with this, Isaiah chapter 53. Mm. So John, that's that's really the passage that impacted my life.
0: It's the land and the book, and I'm John Geiger. We're exploring Jewish culture and customs today through the life of Steve Herzig, who was really kind of uh, zapped by Isaiah 53. You came to Christ, and and got discipled. And here you are, of all things, of all things, uh, your sister is involved with the Friends of Israel. Now, here you are working with the ministry all these years later, ironically, I think. And you've written Jewish culture and customs. Now, I can hear some listeners saying, no offense, but if we're not Jewish, why should we care?
3: Oh, I'll tell you why you should care. I think making sure that you understand who the chosen people of God are. You know. John, that God only selected one nation as his chosen nation, actually the earth, Israel, earthy. Uh, He chose one people, one earthly people, ethnically, the Jewish people. And so, yes, you and I, as believers, as part of the church, were chosen before the foundation of the earth, but there's no other nation on the planet whose land and people God has chosen for a specific purpose. And from Genesis to Revelation, The story unfolds with those people, and how we, you, I, and and our listeners who know Christ as their Savior, how we fit in, uh, because we only have a history that goes back to Acts chapter 2. The Jewish people go back to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.
0: Hmm. All right, since we're talking Jewish culture and customs, let me have you do this for us. Walk us through a plain English definition of the various branches of Judaism. I know I get confused easily. I suspect I'm not alone. Let's keep this simple.
3: I'll try to keep it as simple as I can. There's orthodox, conservative, and reform Jewish people. Those would be the three major branches and sub-branches of those. For instance, as you introduced me, you told the folks that I came from an orthodox background, which I did, but I was never one of those ones wearing black hats and uh, high socks and the knickers and the payus or the hairlocks, those are ultra, we call them ultra-Orthodox, those are uh, Lubavitch groups, ultra-Orthodox Jews, but they would fall under the very observant, take the Bible, literally would have some sort of Messianic hope, would keep kosher, honor the Sabbath to certain degrees. You know, you get two Jewish people together, you get three opinions, you get two <laughs> Christians together, you might get five opinions, but okay, so that's the first group. The third group would be the Reform group. That's a group that actually was birthed mostly in Germany, a higher criticism, rabbis being taught to question the authority of the Word of God. They fall into all different kind of categories, where my synagogue on a Shabbat would start about 9 o'clock and last till 12. Theirs might be an hour. Uh, Many Reform congregations have services not much different Then a church service, minus the New Testament. Uh, My synagogue as an Orthodox synagogue wouldn't have had music. We wait for the Messiah for instrumentation. But in a Reformed synagogue, you could have choirs, you could have... all various kinds of uh, expression and music. And you could even, as a subgroup in the reform movement, you could have humanistic Jews who mm. don't even believe in God, but believe the sociology of the Jewish people holding us as a people group. And then in between is the conservative group. And the conservative group, to one way or the other, would lean right or left, but would be right in the middle. So they take a little of the orthodox teaching and a little bit of the Reform teaching, and kind of uh, like Goldilocks and the, you know, and the three bears, just just right. It's just <laughs> right, and so you'll find Jewish people in that category. But interesting today, as the church faces, there's so many Jewish people who are not part of a formal Jewish experience. Uh, that's increasing, where they're not aligned with any of those three, and kind of cut their own path. But basically, those would be the three groups.
0: Steve Herzig is director of North American Ministries for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, and he's written Jewish Culture and Customs. Well, give us an example of a Jewish custom that points to Christ, our Messiah.
3: That's a great question, John. You know, coming up uh, this spring is uh, Passover, Pesach, and Passover has a number of biblical illustrations, certainly the Lamb blood and Christ celebrated the Passover, But in the Seder service is a three matzahs in three distinct pouches or on three distinct plates on one plate. In other words, three matzahs on one thing. And the Jewish people take those three matzahs and they always take the middle matzah, always. It's always the middle. Uh, The rabbis say that those three matzahs represent the people of the land. They represent the priests and they represent the high priests. But they always take the middle matzah, break it, hide it, and it's hidden away. And the kids in the Seder go look for it. And it's called the afikomen, the only Greek word in the whole Seder service. And they bring that found piece of matzah, and they get a reward for it. It's actually purchased back and eaten. The significance of that is that afikomen, the only Greek word in the Seder service, means he came. So I'm here to tell you, John, I celebrated for 22 years the Passover. I even had opportunity to find the matzah, the middle matzah, and Mm -hmm. I was remembering telling my dad, Dad, I'm a reasonable guy. I know you have to give me whatever I ask for. I only want a new bike. And he said, you're going to take a dollar or nothing. So (laughs) I took the dollar. (laughs) But the point is, it's purchased. And I'm telling you, the Greek word means he came. So unknowingly, John, For 22 years and for 3,000 years, the Jewish people take that middle matzah and it points to the middle person of the Godhead, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and do in essence what Jesus did that last Passover. So that to me is something I remember watching my first Passover as a believer, a 22-year-old believer, thinking at the beginning, well, there's nothing I can learn from this. I've celebrated Passover 22 years And As it turns out, that was a jaw-dropper for me. I never forgot it, and now as I have opportunity to do Passovers in churches and in homes, it's one of the most poignant times of the Seder and drives home that passage that led me to the Lord, Isaiah 53, as the one who paid for our sins.
0: We're talking with Steve Herzig today on The Land and the Book. He's a conference speaker and Bible teacher, also a contributing editor with Israel My Glory magazine. One of the chapters in your book is titled Why Blessings Matter. So let me ask, why do blessings matter so much in the Jewish world?
3: Oh, blessings matter a great deal. You know, if you're a Star Trek fan, you know that uh, Leonard Nimoy learned his uh, two fingers apart, live long and prosper. That was actually half of a ironic blessing where the priest would hold up his hand two hands together forming a triangle with his two fingers apart. During the Sabbath, it's very customary for the Father to recite numbers, may the Lord bless you and keep you, passage. Uh, blessings matter a whole lot, and they mattered a whole lot to God. And God talked about blessing his people. Brucha is the Hebrew word blessing. We're blessed. You, you read a lot in the New Testament from the Jewish scriptures about blessings as well. There's nothing more encouraging to me than when someone says, I'm praying the Lord's blessing upon you. We want God to smile on us. And, you know, in Judaism, the way God smiles on us is how we live on this earth. I learned a great deal and understand what Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 says, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's great to know that there's a blessing for anyone who trusts Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach, as their Savior, as their Messiah and Lord, because of the blessing that God has for us.
0: Let's say somebody listening right now happens to be Jewish, and they are connecting with what you are sharing, Steve. How could they receive Jesus?
3: You know, a, a great question. It's a very simple answer Believe on the Lord Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. You know, Joshua took the reins from Moses and led the people into the land. Yeshua is the one that takes us out of bondage, the marketplace of bondage, and leads us to him. And so I would say to them, go to the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, read the prophets, go to Isaiah 53, and read for yourself, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That's Jewish. That's, that's not Gentile. That's Jewish, and we thank God for it.
0: Well, so much to talk about. We'd love to uh, schedule another visit with you, Steve, to talk further about Jewish culture and customs. And I'm assuming that uh, you're hoping that people who, who uh, read the book would walk away and do something. What's that one thing you'd like them to do?
3: I want them to be challenged, and that's what I do as part of my work and ministry with the Friends of Israel, challenge people to just be willing to learn about people that they're not familiar with. You know, we get we have times where we encourage Christians to just go to their neighborhood synagogue, go there for a Shabbat service, they'll ask you what you're doing there, you just tell them, hey, I'm... I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus, and I thank God for the Jewish people. One day I met a Jewish man, changed my life. I was never the same, and I just want to get to know your people because they mean so much to me.
0: Great. Well, we'll we'll certainly have you on the program again, and uh, we'll point our listeners right now to the website, thelandandthebook.org, where they can learn more about you, about uh, Friends of Israel, Ministry, and uh, the book itself. That's thelandandthebook.org. Coming up... Charlie's back with questions and answers here on The Land and the Book. The theme verse for Moody Bible Institute is 2 Timothy 2.15. Maybe you know it or memorized it. Study to show yourself approved unto God, it says. A workman correctly handling the word of truth is what it's really referring to. And as you study the Bible, maybe there are passages that make you wonder, passages that you really want to correctly handle, but you're not quite sure what to do with them. Well, that's what this next segment is about here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back, by the way. I'm John Gager, our host, Charlie Dyer. you ready for today's questions, Charlie? Oh, I am, John. Well, let me start with one of my own. How do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Uh, because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it's sometimes challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with someone from a Jewish background. Have you ever wondered how the uh, quote-unquote professionals do it?
1: Well, to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracts their staff use as they share the gospel. This will serve a dual purpose, equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supplying you with tracts you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life in Messiah's prayer is that these tracks will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. To receive this helpful assortment of tracks, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio
0: button there for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. All right, let's get to our first question, this one from Pam. She says, portrayals of the nativity always show it being Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, and usually a donkey since both of Mary's and Joseph's families were from the line of David, wouldn't their parents also be required to go to Bethlehem to register for the tax? Ultimately, it doesn't affect my belief in the virgin birth or, for that matter, history, but wouldn't it have been safer for them to travel with a caravan rather than just as Mary and Joseph by themselves? What do you think?
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes we're frustrated because the biblical account doesn't provide all the details we want. And as a result, we need to be careful that uh, we don't want to be too dogmatic when it comes to our speculations. But my gut feeling is your thoughts are probable. You know, Joseph and Mary could have at least potentially traveled in a caravan with others heading south. Now, I'm not sure how many living in Nazareth could trace their ancestry back to David or to Bethlehem, I suspect the number probably was quite small, but it's likely people in Galilee were traveling south toward Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Hebron and other towns in Judah at that time. And for safety's sake, they would probably have tried to travel together in caravans. And I also think some of the women there in Bethlehem would have come to Mary's aid. You know, the idea of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus and a donkey being the only ones there at the birth probably doesn't fit reality. But in fact, the Bible doesn't tell us. So at least until the shepherd showed up, we don't know who was there. But likely some women did help Mary
0: with that delivery. A question from Timothy. Last week in church, our pastor talked about Luke 14, when Jesus dined with the Pharisees. The pastor said that in Jesus' day, people ate two meals a day and three meals on the Sabbath. What meals did they eat, or what times of day did they eat, and what would have been their typical foods? I'm a physical therapist interested in diet, health, and wellness from a biblical perspective. Yeah,
1: and you know, we don't have a one-size-fits-all answer. If you look at the different accounts in the Bible of people eating, you find the disciples eating as they're walking through the fields. We find uh, uh, Jesus with the uh, two disciples on the road to Emmaus eating an afternoon meal, but we're not told exactly when all the meals were held. But one article I would suggest, in fact, it's it's great for people who want to know the Bible, the 1939 edition of the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia is online. It's free. And that encyclopedia has an article on meals and meal times in the Bible. So what I would recommend is just uh, Google International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. And then when the link comes up, when you open it up, uh, look for meals and mealtime. And I think you'll find an article that's quite helpful. Now, the one takeaway is typically individuals grab something small to eat in the morning as they began their day. They usually took a midday meal in the hottest part of the day when they wanted to get out of the heat and into the shade, like Ruth and Boaz did. And then they usually had another meal near sundown when it came time at the end of the day to come back from work. Of course, there were also banquets and feasts and special
0: occasions that weren't part of that normal daily life for the average person. Thank you, Charlie. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Again, our host, Charlie Dyer, is answering questions that have come into us via email this one from Marvin. Some pastors say the sacrifices show Jesus' family was poor. Others say the sacrifices indicate Jesus' family was middle class. Can you explain the different types of sacrifices the law commanded? And as a builder, would Joseph be a middle class tradesman or a poor unskilled worker? Yeah, the Luke 2, 22 to 24, I think in that passage, Luke provides an Old
1: Testament context for the sacrifices from the book of Leviticus. In fact, in Leviticus 12, uh, the expectation was the family was to bring, and here's what Leviticus says, a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. But then God offered an exception for someone who couldn't afford the expense of the lamb. The woman still needed to bring two offerings, but God allowed her to substitute a second pigeon or dove for the lamb. Now, the fact that Mary and Joseph took advantage of God's provision, uh, well, that suggests that they would have been considered poor. They weren't able to afford uh, having that lamb. Uh, By the way, I'm not sure thinking in terms of middle-class tradesmen is is a good characterization of Joseph. Certainly as a carpenter or stonemason, he would have been a skilled craftsman. But in those days, technology and tools were expensive, while labor was relatively cheap. A skilled craftsman and a common field hand each made roughly the same amount for a day's labor. Uh, So uh, Joseph would have been a skilled worker, but that doesn't necessarily make him middle-class by at least the way we
0: understand that today. Sharon asks, when a baby is born, if the mother has an infection, often the baby will also be sick. These are inherited. But when it comes to the sin nature, it's not a disease. It's not a genetic condition from the father. So what is it? Is it a judgment from God because of Adam's sin? So each baby is born with a brain that chooses rebellion? Yeah, and this answer is a bit complex, so bear with me here. Uh, But I need to do just a
1: a bit of theology first. Uh, Adam's sin had two major impacts on the human race. The first is often called original sin. Uh, The second is often called imputed sin. Now, the first refers to the reality that when Adam and Eve sinned, they died morally and spiritually. They developed a a fallen human nature, and every descendant of Adam and Eve has inherited that fallen nature. It, It just became part of who we are. The good news, though, is that Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for the sin that flows from our fallen nature. Now, the second impact is called imputed sin. Uh, This refers to the reality that since the entire human race was still in Adam at that point, the guilt that fell on Adam also fell on the entire human race. It relates to our standing before God. So in God's eyes, the entire human race uh, at that time became sinful. Now, to some, that might seem harsh, but Paul explains the reality of that truth in Romans 5, and the good news is the flip side of the coin. Uh, Just as Adam's sin was imputed against us, so also the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. We might have been condemned because of Adam's sin, but in the same way, we're justified because of Christ's righteousness. Now, that's a brief explanation, but what I'd suggest is read carefully Romans chapter 5 and reflect on how God has Paul there explain that amazing reality since it's part of the bedrock of our
0: relationship with God. Robert says, I'm interested in Yenuka Rav Shlomo Yehuda. Do you have any opinions on him? I'm trying to understand the Bible better and have so many questions about the validities of the New Testament. Any guidance would be appreciated.
1: Yeah, and I have to say, I'd I'd not heard of him. So I went online, I watched some of the news pieces and other articles about him, and and here's my thoughts. First, we know this man is not the Messiah. He wasn't born in Bethlehem. That's one characteristic. But two, we know Jesus was the Messiah, and he's already fulfilled all the prophecies related to the Messiah's first coming. Uh, Second, some of the videos exaggerate the impact this individual's having on Israel. He appears to be a young rabbi who does have a following, though the extent of the ultra-Orthodox who follow him is probably being overstated by those talking about him. He hasn't been prominently featured in Jewish news articles, either secular or religious. And the third observation I had is there have been numerous Messianic candidates over the centuries. In fact, a friend of mine, Gene Mayhew, compiled the Encyclopedia of Messianic Candidates and Movements in Judaism, Samaritanism, and Islam, and uh, there's literally been hundreds of Messianic pretenders. And all that reminds me of Jesus' words, remember, in Matthew 24, where he said that many would appear claiming to be the Messiah. Now, As the end times approach, we should expect this type of activity to increase.
0: But by itself, that's just not a sign that we're already in the end times. Jim says, I understand that Psalm 118, 19 through 29 was sung by the Jews at the Passover meal. Can you clarify what day is specified in Psalm 118, verse 24? I believe it can be Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, or is it his crucifixion or his resurrection? What do you think? Well, when the psalmist says there, this is the day the Lord has
1: made, let's rejoice and be glad in it, I see the day... Being defined by the verses just before and just after. Uh, in the verses before, he describes a time when God will open the gates of the Lord to let the righteous enter, and he connects it to a time when uh, God will uh, visibly demonstrate his deliverance and his answering to prayer. He says it's the time when the stone that's been rejected will become the chief cornerstone. Uh, and, and then he uh, at the end of it all, he says, the deliverer who's going to be coming is going to be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now when I put all that together, It looks up to me like the psalm is saying God's coming deliverance of his people through the one he would send to restore him. That day is, in a a broad sense, focused on that time of deliverance. And uh, as a result, I I tend to see it being fulfilled ultimately in the second coming when Jesus is going to come to
0: rescue his people and set up his kingdom on earth. And that's our Q&A segment for the day. By the way, your question is welcome via email at at moody.edu. One more segment to go. It's Charlie Dyer's devotional next here on The Land and the Book. Ask a hundred different people their favorite spot in Israel, having gone to the Holy Land. You might just get a hundred different answers. But, you know, for me, I love Capernaum. I'm John Geiger. Welcome back to The Land of the Book. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, has a devotional for us coming up, Charlie, that is focused on an incident at Capernaum? That's right, John. Actually, two incidents that are back-to-back,
1: and I'm glad you love Capernaum because uh, this is going to be a two-part series that I've titled
0: Jesus and the Two Women of Capernaum. All right, we'll look forward to that. But first, let's listen to this Holy Land experience, a great testimony from someone who has been to uh, the Holy Land, and this is their favorite moment.
2: I'm Ashley from Tampa, Florida, and coming on this trip, you bring with you all the things you're dealing with at home and thinking about, and um, I remember being in Capernaum and Charlie sharing with us from Matthew 18, and that um, being a child of God, um, we're not responsible for dealing with our critics, and we are His children, and seeing the millstone that's there that um, He'll say, hung on their necks and dragged into the sea, that um, it's in His hands, and we don't have to worry about it and be at peace. My name's Sandy, I'm from Alabama, and what meant so much to me, well, lots of things meant so much to me, but I love Capernaum because just being there, I've read about that little village so many times, Jesus being there. That was where it was his kind of second hometown, and just imagine him walking there and walking in that synagogue there that it just filled my heart, and it came alive in a new way to me. Thanks so much.
0: Mark's Gospel, the shortest of all four of them. And in chapter 5, Charlie, there is a story that you think needs our attention today. I'm looking forward to this.
1: Yeah, that's right, John. In fact, the accounts of the two women of Capernaum that I want to talk about is actually found in Matthew 9, Mark 5, and Luke 8. But I want to focus primarily on Mark's Gospel because he provides several details not found in the other accounts. The stories of these two women are interwoven with the account of Jesus meeting the one woman, sandwiched in between the beginning and ending of the other account now that sounds confusing but it gets worse because we're actually beginning our story in magdala six miles south of capernaum our destination here in magdala is duke in altum a building dedicated to the public life of jesus the name comes from the latin vulgate translation of luke 5 4 where jesus told simon to launch out into the deep Now watch your step as we walk down the stairs to the lower chapel called the Encounter Chapel. The flooring in here is from Magdala's first century marketplace. I brought you here to show you a remarkable painting on the wall. The first thing you'll notice about the painting is that all you can see are legs and sandaled feet with just one exception. In the midst of all the feet, you can spot a hand reaching through the legs to touch the very bottom of a garment. The artist didn't need to provide a caption. Those who know the Bible instantly recognize what's taking place. The figure just to the right in a white robe is Jesus. And the hand reaching out to touch the fringe of his garment is the one we know simply as the woman with the issue of blood. Now take your pictures because we're now heading back upstairs and out to the bus for a 15 minute ride to Capernaum. We're going to transport the remarkable scene from the picture you just saw to the town where the event actually took place. Okay. We're now in Capernaum, so let's head down to the lake. You can see that ancient Capernaum was not a large city. The ruins of the synagogue are there on the left, and just in front of us is a modern chapel built over what's believed to be the home of Simon Peter. And there, off to the right, we can see the water of the Sea of Galilee lapping against the shore. Jesus' encounter with the two women of Capernaum began when the boat carrying Jesus and the disciples pulled into the harbor here at Capernaum. Almost immediately, Jesus was surrounded by a crowd, including at least one VIP, an official from the synagogue. Uh, We'll pick up the story of Jesus, the synagogue official, and his young daughter next week. But let me simply say that this synagogue official makes it clear to Jesus that his help is needed immediately, right now, this very moment. It's a matter of life and death. Jesus His disciples and the synagogue official begin pushing their way through the crowd to reach the official's home. But along that crowded street, something remarkable is about to happen. A woman pushed her way through the crowd trying to reach Jesus. Mark says she had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, and he provides a less than flattering picture of the medical care she had been receiving. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better... She grew worse. Luke, the physician, was a little more charitable toward his fellow doctors. He simply reported that no one could heal her. The woman might not have even lived in Capernaum. She just happened to be in the town that day and when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd. Jesus had spent time in Capernaum before and almost everyone in town must have known of him by then. But this woman just happened to be passing through at the very time Jesus arrived. She heard the reports of what he'd done in the past, and almost on impulse, she started pushing her way through the crowd to reach him. The woman knew very little about Jesus, but she believed what she'd heard. Approaching him from behind, she reached out to touch the fringe of his garment because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Dr. Luke, again, with his medical precision, explains that she actually touched the edge of his cloak perhaps the fringes or tassels on the edge of an observant Jewish man's garment. She didn't feel worthy of stopping Jesus to demand that he heal her, but she felt that reaching out to touch him or even just his garment would be enough. She could tell at once that she'd been healed. We're never given specific details about her medical condition, but Leviticus 15 makes it clear that a woman who was bleeding, even during her normal period, was considered unclean, and anyone who came into contact with her was also considered unclean. This woman was ritually unclean for 12 years, and she had just touched Jesus. Her momentary feeling of relief and joy at being healed was immediately replaced by fear when Jesus called out, Who touched my clothes? The crowd might not be too receptive to a woman who was ceremonially unclean, jostling them in these narrow streets. The disciples tried to dismiss this question. After all, Lord, who hasn't bumped into you? Look at the crowd. But the woman knew he was referring to her. She came, fell at his feet, and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Perhaps expecting to be rebuked for her violation of the Levitical laws of purity, or for making him ceremonially unclean, or for delaying his trip to help a young child, she must have been relieved to hear him say, "'Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering.'" She experienced physical healing, but she also experienced Jesus' assuring words of peace and hope. Her physical healing was matched by a spiritual healing that was the result of her faith. So what lessons can we take away from Jesus' encounter with this first woman in Capernaum? Let me suggest this. Jesus said it was the woman's faith that had healed her. Evidently, she knew very little about Jesus, but she was willing to act on what she'd been told. And then following her physical healing, she was willing to fall at Jesus's feet and tell him and all those around him her entire story. So what has you in its hold today? It might be some physical problem, but it could also be an emotional burden or scar or fear or guilt or some spiritual struggle that has you in its grasp. Maybe today is the day to push forward and reach out to Jesus to find his healing touch and acceptance Edward Joy wrote the words to a song that could be your theme today. Is there a heart o'erbound by sorrow? Is there a life weighed down by care? Come to the cross, each burden bearing, all your anxiety, leave it there. All your anxiety, all your care, bring to the mercy seat, leave it there. Never a burden he cannot bear, never a friend like Jesus.
0: And you know, as you listen to this broadcast, maybe for the first time, you realize that Jesus is sort of a friend, but sort of from a distance. You've never really made him in charge of your life. Never asked him to be, the Bible word is savior. Charlie, for someone who finds themselves in that position right now, what should they do? They they, they want Jesus to be their friend, not their judge. What do they do?
1: Uh, it's, it's simple. It comes through faith and prayer. Uh, there's nothing they need to do in terms of trying to earn salvation. It's simply saying something like this to Jesus, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I need you. I know your son came and and died to pay the penalty for my sin. And right now I wanna receive him as my savior and Lord. I wanna place my trust in him. Forgive me of my sin. Give me eternal life because of what your son has done for me. And I ask it in his name, amen.
0: What a great prayer. And if you've just prayed that prayer, we invite you to uh, click on the upper right-hand corner at our website, thelandandthebook.org. There's a link there to Knowing Jesus Christ. We've got some free resources there that'll get you started, drop some roots, and maybe answer some questions. So that's thelandandthebook.org. Also at the website, links to past programs, future programs, information about our guests books that Charlie and I have written and a whole lot more. It's at thelandandthebook.org. Sure has been a pleasure having you on board today. Hope you enjoyed the journey together. The Land of the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.